Here we are in our second to last week in our sermon series on the book of Revelation, Revelation Unveiled. I'd love to hear from some of you. How have you enjoyed this sermon series in the book of Revelation? Have you liked it so far? Good. Hey, that's good to hear. Good. Well, we as a teaching team have really enjoyed just digging into this challenging book each and every week and unpacking some of the eternal truths that God has blessed us with through the pen of the Apostle John. And as we're winding down this series here, I feel like we need to start off today with an apology. You see, there has been a very important question that I believe you have that uh, we have left unanswered. Sure, I'm not, I'm not really talking about the obscure symbol or maybe some interesting phrase or an interpretation of the end of time, although I'm sure you have a lot of those questions that have come up in the last several weeks. And Ken told me that if that's so, I'm going to have all of you write those questions down. We're going to give them to Patrick, and he's going to answer all of them for us, okay? So I'm just kidding. But uh, no, not, one of the, not, not those types of questions. That's not what I'm talking about. You see... Up to this point in our apocalypse, up to this point in the book of Revelation, I believe John has left a question unanswered. It's not just us here in the 21st century that feel like a question has been left unanswered. When John wrote this letter back in the 1st century, in the early 90s, and he sent this letter across the Mediterranean Sea to that landmass called Asia Minor, the modern-day country of Turkey, and when the little delivery boys and postmen went throughout and to secret homes and underground churches with this letter and burst in and started reading it out loud to the huddled, persecuted Christians in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sar in Philadelphia and Laodicea, I believe the Christians back then in the first century would have felt as if in this point in the book of Revelation that John had left a question unanswered. Sure, I mean, John had shown them the resurrected, glorified Jesus holding the keys of death and Hades like this symbol we saw here in the first week in Revelation chapter 1. And sure, John had shown God speaking directly to these concerned Christians about his broken heart over their unrepentance in Revelation 2. And sure, he had kind of stirred up their complacency and apathy like an alarm clock awaking them from our slumber in Revelation 3. And sure, he had taken us to the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5, seeing the slain lamb sitting on the throne and these 24 elders and four living creatures casting their crowns at the feet of Jesus in worship of him. Sure, he had done all of that, but he knew that at this point in his book, he had not even addressed their question yet. And when those four seals in Revelation 6 open up, and you see four uh, horsemen of the apocalypse riding with death and destruction following them, he knows that he needs to address their question. So he opens up that fifth seal, and there's a picture of the Christians and the martyrs underneath the altar crying out, and here it is, the question that is burning on their minds, and I believe your mind today too. It's simply this, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? 
That's it. That's the question. How long, O Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? I'm going to package the question this way today. How long till how long is too long? I mean, they're wanting to know, when are you going to judge all the inhabitants of the earth, the earth dwellers, the non-Christians that are persecuting us? They're desiring to find out, when are you going to avenge our blood? When are you going to destroy all the evil forces in the world? They want to know, when will there be no more suffering? They're desiring to figure out, when will there be no more sickness like Alzheimer's or no more lonely nights for single parents? When will there be no more wars? When will pornography be a problem of the past? When will there be an end to human trafficking? When will there be no more addictions, no more hurts or habits or hang-ups? When will families be made whole? When will there be enough jobs, enough clothes, enough education, enough food for everyone? When will there be no more tears? When will death finally be destroyed? How long till how long is too long? And you see, John responds to this question, not with an answer. No, that would be too easy up front. He responds with a command. Because he reveals to us after the seven seals are open, there are seven trumpets. And they testify and they announce that we have one duty in the midst of suffering. And that's to witness to the gospel of God's grace. To testify, to tell the good news, no matter what. That we are to accept the baton of all of those that have gone before us. And to witness like the martyrs did for the last 2,000 years. And I imagine some of you today are probably doing what they would have done back then want to come up to him and kind of tap him on the shoulder and say, okay, John, I get it, but you haven't answered my question yet. How long till how long is too long? And John said, well, let me talk to you about uh, uh, evil in the world. Let me pull back the veil on evil and show you who's behind all of this mess. Let me show you how to see clearly, like these glasses here, how to understand who is attacking you, that you have a dragon called Satan. And his two beasts trying to get you in the electric chair or the easy chair. Trying to kill you or deceive you. And the only way to endure to fight back is to keep your eyes on the lamb on the throne. To worship him. I'm sure they would come up to him and say, Okay, John. But you haven't answered my question yet. How long till how long is too long? And then he said, well, let me show you the, six, the seven bowls of God's wrath in Revelation 16 that Patrick preached about last week. That those close to you but far from God will be judged. That the scales of human history will be weighed and they will be measured. And those people that are the inhabitants of the earth will be judged. And I'm sure some of you will come up with the Christians back then, tap them on the shoulder and say, okay, you've got part of the answer. But when will you avenge our blood? How long till how long is too long? Eugene Peterson, when writing about this passage, he said this. The desire for judgment develops. The frustration of delay deepens. I mean, isn't there something inside of us that when we see injustice in the world, we say, I want to see that said right. Just like toddlers, when you, they first experience this unjust world, they say, that's not fair. How long till how long is too long? So John knows that he hasn't answered our question yet. So what he does is he paints us a picture 
of two processionals. The first is a parade. Now, you have to remember that John is first and foremost not a prophet or a fortune teller or a political activist. John is a pastor, and he's writing to his churches in Asia Minor that are undergoing suffering and persecution, and he's wanting to give them some hope. He wants to give them a picture of hope, how to endure in the midst of this hard time. And so he gives them a parade. We'll see it starting in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. It says this, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery. And the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now what in the world is going on here, okay? I mean, how do we end with the seven bowls of God's wrath in chapter 16? We turn the page and there's a prostitute being destroyed. It's called a chiasm, okay? Now, bear with me here, okay? Um, This comes from the Greek letter key, or what we would say was a big X, okay? This is the Greek letter key. And this was a Jewish literary device used all throughout the Bible in order for them to keep track of stories. You see, Jews didn't think like in a linear fashion or along a straight line like us, okay? They were very circular, okay? They told circles. So you see here the structure. Let's get rid of this side of the X. You see how this is kind of, they began with subpoints, A and A, and they would keep the main point for the middle. You see that's kind of a circle? Because it makes sense. Revelation 12 through 20 is a big circle. We started in Revelation 12 with the dragon, and guess where we're in Revelation 20? The dragon. This is what's happening here. Let me walk this through for you. Okay, so Revelation 12 through 16, you see all evil kind of introduced, okay? You see the dragon introduced, representing Satan in Revelation 12. Then Revelation 13, these two beasts, these grotesque kind of sidekicks of the dragon are introduced. And then Revelation 14, you have the city of Babylon that's introduced, okay, or a prostitute. Then in Revelation 16, as Patrick talked about last week, this is kind of the key, that people that are close to us but far from God will be judged. Then look what happens after Revelation 16. Revelation 17, 18, the Babylon or prostitute is destroyed. Then Revelation 19, the two beasts are destroyed. And then Revelation 20, the dragon is destroyed. Look at this entire picture. It's one full circle. Evil introduced, non-Christians judged, evil destroyed. You see, this is what John is doing is he's painting a picture of this prostitute in Revelation 17 being destroyed. It represents Rome, this empire that was persecuting the Christians. And then Revelation 18, they all burst out into song singing how wonderful it is that Babylon has fallen. And no, I'm not going to sing for you this week as they did. But that's what happened. They all sing. They're so excited that that prostitute's been destroyed. And then Revelation 19, you have the two beasts destroyed in that passage that Brian read earlier with Jesus on a white horse and pulling a sword out of his mouth and destroying these beasts. And then in Revelation 20, at the end of this parade, you have the dragon, our enemy, marching to his destruction. It was called a triumphal procession or a parade. In the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, if they would conquer another nation, they would gather up all the prisoners of war and all the generals and then the king. And they would take that, all those people back to Rome And they would march them through the streets of the empire. And then they would march them to the steps of the temple where they would kill all the prisoners of war, kill the generals, and save the king for last. And then they would behead him 
and that nation will be completely defeated. That's what's going on here. He is walking this triumphal procession, this prostitute and beast and the dragon, through the streets to their destruction. Look how it's described in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, now, that, what I just read, is probably one of the most divisive, debatable passages in the entire New Testament, okay? And I thank Ken so much for assigning that passage for me today, right? Um, but really, it is. And there's a lot of opinions. Like, are they a thousand years literal or figurative? Is the second coming before the thousand years, during or after? There's just a lot of opinions on this. And so I want to bring up again that interpretive key I taught you a couple of weeks ago. You remember that? It's simply this. Don't miss the forest for the trees, Okay, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't get the big picture. Don't lose the big picture and get caught up on all the details of what's being described. What's the scene? It's a parade, right? The prostitutes being destroyed, the two beasts, and dragon. They're heading to their destruction. Look at how it describes the destruction of the beast in Revelation 27 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. No matter what your theological bent is, your opinions on the thousand year situation, here's the big scene. Here is what John is trying to communicate. Jesus wins. We are victorious. All these evil people are destroyed in the end. My president of my school, Matt Proctor, wrote a devotion on the book of Revelation. And on this passage about all the kind of interesting viewpoints on this passage, he says this. Either way, the devil takes an eternal swim in the lake of fire. Either way, our enemy Satan is defeated. Either way, Jesus wins. That's the message. Yeah. So why didn't John just say that? (laughs) You know, I mean, honestly, when you think about it, like, why go through all this imagery? Why talk about a triumphal procession and a prostitute and a white horse and a sword coming out of someone's mouth and beast and a dragon? Why go through all of that? Why didn't he just say, hey, guys, guess what? Jesus defeats Satan and all those that support Satan in the end, period. We can all go home. There's no argument, right? And we kind of get the picture. Here's the thing. It's because... John is a pastor, and he knows his churches need more than a sentence. They need a symbol. Symbols are powerful. They evoke emotion. They call us to action. They call us to respond to the symbol, right? That's why you have people who burn American flags. That's a powerful symbol. That evokes emotion. That calls people to respond. They could, those people could just say, we hate America, 
but that doesn't have the same effect as burning a flag. And it, it evokes emotions, whether you're on their side or people who live in America. That is a symbol. John's a pastor. He knows they need more than a simple indicative sentence. They need a symbol. So he gives them a mocking jay, right? He gives them a Boston Tea Party. He gives them flour being thrown on Castle's football field. He gives them a symbol. He gives them a narrative. He gives them a picture of a parade that after the resurrection, Jesus was victorious. And since then, the prostitute, these beasts, and the dragon are being paraded through the streets to their destruction. That's your enemy. Bound and headed to his destruction. Because look at how it describes the beast in Revelation 20 verse 2. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. You see, ever since the resurrection, Satan has been in handcuffs, in shackles, been walking to his destruction. That's the image. That's the symbol to get us through this place called earth. So what's the command in the midst of all of this imagery? What's the so what factor? What's the application where it comes to us in the song. Revelation chapter 18 verse 4. It says this. Come out of her my people. That's the command. Come out of her my people. It's talking about the prostitute that's being destroyed. Or Babylon representing the city of Rome. This Roman empire. You see. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the unholy trinity, right? You remember this? In Revelation 12 through 14, this dragon was introduced, representing Satan. And then he had these two beasts that were kind of, they got you the electric chair or the easy chair. And they looked a lot like Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And they're trying to steal your worship, this unholy trinity is. Because we have the real trinity that wants you to worship them. You're created to worship them. But what happened was this unholy trinity also has people on earth that are worshiping it. And they're called a prostitute, just like the real trinity has people on earth worshiping it. And they're called a bride, or the bride of Christ. So this prostitute is a parody of the reality of the church. It's this group of people on earth trying to steal your devotion from being devoted to the church, the bride of Christ. And it says, come out of her my people. Because this Roman Empire was, seemed like it was the strongest empire in the world. Like it was conquering the known world. Like the only way to survive was to be devoted to the Roman Empire. This point really hit home with me this last weekend. Um, I was invited and asked to be the best man at my best friend's wedding, Atlas, in Centralia, Missouri. And so I was on the way there and I had to stop in St. Louis and pick up our mutual friend, John, who was also a groomsman. And John and I are huge nerds. We love nerdy things. And so we spent a whole day in St. Louis going to art museums and um, libraries and talking about literature and philosophy. It was just a ton of fun. And, um, and yeah, I know. That's who I am. Um, can't help it. But uh, we ended up that day, that afternoon, going to a Holocaust museum. And we were very interested to kind of dig into the, the culture leading up to the rise of the Nazi party. We devoured the information on the Christian crusades that dispersed all the Jews and made them scatter throughout Europe and Asia. And the prejudices that planted the seeds for the Holocaust that came to follow. And then we came to the concentration camp, camp room. And our hearts began to break as we saw images of 
men whose ribs were showing through their skin and women who had been stripped naked to stand for days in the winter cold so the weak ones would die off. We saw images of gas rooms and furnaces and killing holes. We couldn't help but hear the voices from the past crying out, how long till how long is too long. You see, at that time, it seemed as if the German Empire were the, was the most powerful nation on earth, as if it was going to conquer the known world, as if the only hope to survive was to join forces and be devoted to that earthly entity. We know the reality of the story, that she was just a prostitute heading to her destruction. And a whole generation, the greatest generation that ever lived, rise up and pulled back the veil on that ugly reality. The command was, come out of her, my people. That was the command in the first century, in the midst of the Roman Empire. That was the command during the 30s and 40s with the German Empire. And it's the command today, come out of her, my people. Whether that be ISIS persecution in Iraq or Syria, come out of her, my people. Whether that be Russian dominance of Crimea or Ukraine, come out of her, my people. Whether that be acquiring for yourself all the luxuries and things you can get your hands on to keep up with the materialistic culture, come out of her, my people. Whether that be protecting our borders at the expense of helping the least of these or giving in to the cultural war so we're not seen as bigots or haters, the command remains, come out of her, my people. That's the command then and it's the command now. For John knows that there's another processional. It's not a parade, but it's a wedding. Just like this unholy trinity has this prostitute, in the midst of all of this imagery, the holy trinity speaks about its bride. Look about this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Friends, there is a bride of this Christ, and it's the church, and she is making herself ready. Now, after John and I left the Holocaust Museum, we drove two hours to Centralia, Missouri, for my friend Atlas's wedding. Have you been part of a wedding lately? Weddings are insane. Like, there are so many things to do to prepare for a wedding. I have a friend right now who's preparing for her wedding. This is her wedding notebook. Look at this thing. There's div- dividers and all kinds of checklists. That's a semester of classes in college right there. I mean, look at that. And did you know this? All weddings have websites now. I thought just organizations. No, each wedding has its own website. It's, this is incredible. All the details that you have to go through just for a wedding to happen. It was especially emotional for me that weekend because I was the best man of my best friend. I stood there on that stage. I couldn't help but think about all the things that he had gone through to come to that point in his history to be ready for his wedding. The trouble, the issues with his family, the the troubles at school, 
the girls upon girls upon girls upon girls that finally led to him meeting Kelsey. Don't tell Kelsey I said that. But finally, he, here he was, ready in the right time in his life to receive his bride. And there was just the weekend in and of itself. I mean, for us to be standing there in that moment, all the things that, had to, that we had to go through, there was the rehearsal the day before, the rehearsal dinner, the bachelor party, the bachelorette party, decorating the reception hall. We got up the next morning, we got our tuxes, I mean our clothes together, made sure they were ironed appropriately, the girls were getting their hair done, their makeup done. We made it to the building finally, and then you have to start escorting all the people in, the ushers are sitting them in the right seats, on the right side, right? The wedding party comes in, you got to do the walk, you know, in the right way, get them down, you have to walk the girls up the steps so they don't fall down in high heels, stand in our place. Finally, here we are, ready for the wedding. The flower girls come in down the aisle, do some little cute thing, makes everyone laugh. They sit down and the music stops. I saw Atlas gasp for air. Because then he knew the next stroke of the piano, everyone stood up on their feet. And we turned to face the back of the room because the truth of the matter was this. We knew that the bride was coming. Friends, I want to tell you something this morning. I don't like this sermon, to be honest. <laughs> it's a weird thing to say in the middle of your sermon, right? Hopefully you aren't thinking that out there, that you don't like this sermon either, right? Um, I don't. I've really struggled with this sermon because I knew how to get us here. At this point, I knew how to get us right here. I mean, I followed the text, but I didn't know what to do from here on out. You want to know Why? I haven't answered your question yet, have I? I mean, the question, how long, till how long is too long, I haven't answered it. I've given you another great command, haven't I? Come out of her, my people. I think it's true to the text. I think that's a good thing to do, to be faithful to the church, not any other entity on earth. But I haven't answered that question yet. The reason is, I really don't like the answer. I'll give it to you. Here it is. Here's the answer to our question. How long till how long is too long? You ready for this? Here it is. Until I say so. <laughs> oh, great. You know? I mean, God has promised that one day in the future, he will avenge our blood. But that might not be today. It might not be tomorrow or a week from tomorrow or a year from now. I mean, he is the groom standing at the end of the aisle waiting to receive his bride. Jesus has taken his gasp for air. The music has struck. Everyone has stood up on their feet. And then we, his church, are standing on the other side of the doors. Just waiting. Waiting for those doors to fling open and to join our groom for forever. We're sitting there, we're standing, we're asking, how much longer? How much longer can we get to join our groom? How long do I have to wait? How long? And I didn't know the reason why we were waiting until this last Tuesday. It's because of them. It's the 2,000 ornaments and 2,500 names hung around this room. It's the people that are close to us but far from God. 
That is why we wait. As I came here, Patrick had us come down this Tuesday, all the pastors in the worship center and the chapel, and we prayed over these names, and I was right over there on that wall. I read names like Ben and Bethany and Chris and Crystal. I realized those are not just names. Those are people with stories and pasts and future dreams and aspirations and addictions and struggles. And they're not just people, strangers. They're close to us. Those are our family. Our friends. There was a name over there that said, there was an ornament that said, the Smith family. An entire family that has caught up in the wrong processional. An ornament said, Grandpa. Another one, grandkids. Friends, that is why we wait. For 2 Peter 3, 9, it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's, that's, that's where we're at. We are, he is, uh, the groom is standing at the end of the aisle and he's caught in this tension because his heart's breaking off of all, all those names that are caught in the wrong processional. And we're standing on the other side of the door with the door separating us and we're waiting. And here we sit. So, as we sit there, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if maybe you never knew that you were caught in a parade processional heading to your destruction. I don't know if you never knew or had heard the truth that there is a God that loves you and that has gone through so much preparation in order to receive you as his bride. He wants a relationship with you like a husband has with his wife. If you want to know more about that God and about that Jesus, I ask that after this song we sing, you remain seated. One of our pastors or section hosts will come to you and would love to talk with you about who that, who that Jesus is. Maybe, maybe for you, there's names and ornaments you haven't written yet. People that are close to you but far from God. Perhaps you just need to do what we did this last Tuesday. During this next song, go and pray over some of these names. Because friends, the groom is waiting. He's caught in attention. Wanting his bride to come, but his heart is breaking over that parade. And as we stand behind that door and we ask, how long till how long is too long? The groom keeps whispering over and over again, just a bit longer. It's not too late. Will you stand with me? Well, friends, the scene is set. We and the angels in heaven are standing on our feet. The groom is waiting. And when the music is playing, and we all turn to the back door because we know that soon the bride is coming. And now I have a question for you. When those doors fly open, will you be there?
when those doors fly open, will people who are close to you but far from God today, will they be there? Because don't leave that question unanswered.